Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's our yearly Halloween hangover listener mail episode. We always get tons of great listener mail. We have got an absolutely overflowing mailbag right now, so much so that we decided we're going to do two listener mail episodes this week to catch up and, frankly, to help us get through a part of the year that is always very tight and very busy. Yeah, yeah. This And, and this is a good time to, first of all, to have one more heaping scoop of Halloween right here in the the gray zone uh, between uh, the the end of October and, you know, the beginning of, say, Thanksgiving and Christmas, like the the full-on holidays. Well, we have have so much great content to read here. And then after that, it's going to be, it's going to be all Christmas around here. It's going to be holidays (laughs) like, like, like you've never seen it before. But also we've got some weird science lined up for the next few weeks uh, that, that you probably wouldn't believe. So you should be very excited. All right. And I'm excited as well to have Carney here with us, our mail bot, uh, who's been with us the whole time, continually changing over the years, getting new, uh, new augments, new programming, etc. And uh, today is no different. Right. Carney seems to have been very interested in our episodes about photography, burned from the mind's eye, the idea of projecting images onto film that uh, a lot of supposed psychics throughout the years have claimed to be able to do. Uh, we talked about that in a couple of Halloween episodes, and, and Carney has really caught the bug. So now instead of printing out listener mail as he normally does, he projects it psychically, robotically onto various bread products. So we will be reading your listener mails uh, burned from Carney's mind's eye onto tortillas, toast, pitas, all the like. Yeah, he's not supposed to be paying attention to the Invention podcast listener mail, but I think he caught a few uh, regarding our episode on toast, and that may have also led to this current obsession. Yeah, here we go. Should we jump right in, Robert? Let's do it. All right. This first message comes to us from our listener, Alex. This is about the Burned from the Mind's Eye episode. And Alex writes in, Hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to the Burned from the Mind's Eye podcast. I majored in visual studies in college and remembered a study about retinal mapping. In the mid-century, they showed a monkey a simple image and placed a radioactive film directly on the visual cortex with the monkey's brain exposed. It was basically photosensitive paper but was sensitive to the electrical impulses of the brain. The results were a pretty accurate neuronal map to the visual stimulus, but slightly distorted. Basically, the retina is mapped specially onto the brain. While the same process probably couldn't reproduce Garfield or a complex image, you can actually get a picture directly from the brain. Since the occipital or visual cortex is involved in mental imagery as well as in vision, it follows that with technology from the 50s and 60s, you might be able to make photography of an imagined simple shape. That's assuming the visual cortex response of an imagined image is mapped the same as a visually stimulated response. So what's going on here is uh, we were discussing in the episode how imagery is represented in the brain, and uh, our our proposition was that there's not a screen inside the brain that the brain watches imagery take place on uh, that could be projected straight out onto photography. Uh, This sort of complicates it somewhat. Now, I, I think as Alex is saying, 
there's no way you could like find an image of Garfield somewhere in the brain. That doesn't seem to exist even if you're picturing Garfield. But there does seem to be some correlation between what parts of the visual field are being stimulated with various types of light and what parts of the occipital cortex in the back of the head show the most activity. So you can sort of map places on the retina, basically parts of the visual field of things you're looking at, to certain parts of the brain showing increased activity. And I think one consequence of this is that if you show somebody like a very simple black and white shape, you could almost sort of see a version of that shape represented in brain activity in the occipital cortex. So, yeah, it all seems to be just a matter of you know, fine-tuning the, the technology and the data needed to uh, translate this information. Yeah, and again, this probably doesn't work as well or almost certainly doesn't work as well once the image has more complexity to mm-hmm. it. Especially I think it makes a difference, you know, once you consider talk, uh, talking about like the moving of the focus of the eyes and all this. But, you know, you, you can represent parts of the retina, parts of the visual field within a, a sort of uh, a, a map of the visual processing center of the brain. Uh, and I, I didn't know this before, so thank you so much for sharing, Alex. This is really interesting. I, I still don't think think this would really make photography any more plausible uh, because, I mean, uh, there are multiple problems. Uh, Photography tends to project images as you would take with a camera. And again, this is not – you're not getting maps on the brain Mm -hmm. projecting complex images. It's more sort of like rough correlations of areas of the brain to parts of shapes that you would look at. Uh, but And then also, like, how would the signal escape the skull, the fact that people tended to do it at a distance or with the thing in the front of the head instead of in the back? I think there, there are multiple reasons for saying that this, this doesn't really make photography any more plausible unless you were to, say, remove the skull and only look at extremely simple shapes and accept very distorted versions of them as your projected image. Well, and it reminds me, too, how we've talked in the past about how, you know, a lot of times we're, we're reaching for an idea of how psychic transmission of ideas could occur, how I can get the contents of my skull into your skull. Right. And then we overlook the fact that we have this thing called language that does exactly that. Uh, so, yeah, this might be just sort of another bridge uh, between minds, uh, this one, though, technological as opposed to linguistic. Exactly. Uh, Robert, do you mind if I jump on to the next one because it's kind of related? Let's do it. So we were talking about the question, it was raised in one of the papers we looked at, of whether mental imagery could be unconsciously perceived. Can you picture something without being conscious of perceiving it? It's a strange question. Mm-hmm. And Robert, you said, well, wait, could you even see something in with regular vision without being conscious of it? And I answered that I thought there was some evidence for this, like in the invisible gorilla line of research. I seem to recall there were some things where like people wouldn't consciously note seeing a gorilla, but then they might be primed on the subject of gorillas afterwards. Mm. So like maybe some part of them had seen it, but they weren't conscious of seeing it. But after recording the episode, some listeners brought up the condition, and I also thought of the condition that that I should have mentioned there, which is blindsight, uh, which (laughs) we definitely should have thought of because we're both big fans of the the Peter Watts novel where he invokes the concept. But basically, blindsight is a neurological condition in which people can respond to visual stimuli behaviorally, and yet they believe they are blind or blind in some particular part of their visual field. So like you can, I don't know, for example, somebody could toss a ball at you and you could reach up and catch it, but you 
are but you are not conscious of seeing the ball like you don't right. believe you can see it or have seen it yeah yeah i mean certainly with the ball i think we've all had that that situation where uh you're just suddenly catching the ball or i've had i had that situation when my son was younger where he he fell off of some playground equipment mm-hmm. and then suddenly i was like holding him by the foot uh you know yeah. where it's it's just another you know another uh, part of our, uh, our mental machinery is kicking in to make that possible yes and so I, what i think this means is that it seems to me the brain is perfectly capable of processing visual imagery and reacting in some cases in some ways without making that imagery available to the conscious part of the brain that talks. So, yes, I I think there's definitely evidence that it's possible to see unconsciously with regular vision, but that still leaves the other question unanswered, whether it's possible to imagine visual imagery unconsciously. Can you picture Garfield without knowing you're picturing Garfield? And our next email addresses this. So this is from our listener, Tanya. Tanya says, hey, guys, you mentioned the question, can mental imagery be unconscious? I have some experience concerning this question. Sometimes when I read a novel or play a rather boring game on the computer, I suddenly become aware that my mind was busy the last hour with understanding what I read and in the same time picturing something completely unrelated. Normally, it's a landscape of some sort, something I know more or less well. I move in this area similar to the movement you do when you use Google Street View. I had this experience long before Google and its maps was invented. Uh, The pictures I produce are not put into words but stay completely visual until I become aware. Therefore, I would call them unconscious. It happens that I come to places I haven't been to physically in years, but as soon as I see them again, I remember having been there recently in my mind. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Kind of creepy feeling. But in the moment of picturing them, I was completely unaware. Sometimes I'm astounded how inaccurate my inner maps are, like all memories are, I guess. Fascinated listener from Germany, Tanya. Interesting. Yeah, th- so this this whole idea, and I think this is why it was so perplexing when we talked about it the first time, is we really have to figure out what we mean by being conscious of seeing something or conscious of having a, a visual image of it. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that I – are we just talking about uh, it occurring at all or are we talking about me having uh, like a, a focused awareness of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I feel like there's there's sort of room on a scale between the two. Yeah. I mean, I though, though it's kind of hazy, I, I understand what Tanya's talking about here. Like having the idea that you retrospectively remember that you were thinking about something, but you don't have the impression that you were conscious of thinking about it when you were thinking about it. Well, like, like here's a question. When you're in the shower and you're having like shower thoughts uh-huh. – like, are you conscious of those thoughts? Is this a, there's? It's not directed cognition, perhaps you know, mm-hmm. but it's. I wouldn't say that I am unconscious when I'm having, you know, various images and ideas rolling through my head, or if I'm you know staring off of, into space and daydreaming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's weird. We almost think of consciousness as sort of, as like the definitive property of directed cognition, right? Mm-hmm. But like. If you are thinking about something, it's almost implied that necessarily it's conscious, but maybe not. I don't know. Consciousness is so weird. Again, it's – Well, let's move on to the next listener mail that Carney has for us because this will add even more fuel to the fire. Okay. 
All right, this one comes to to us from Wendy. Wendy writes in and says, Hi, guys. First, the Demogorgon episode was tremendous. Second, you can definitely unconsciously envision things. I always thought I thought in words mostly until I started meditating. I was surprised to realize that there was a background of images accompanying the monologue. They impacted and augmented what I thought, and I had no idea they were there. Meditation is neat. So, uh, I, I, I love that, that they brought up meditation mm-hmm. because that's also one of the things that I thought about, the, the idea that, yes, when I am engaging in a meditative state, I will sometimes have um, – well, very often, I think, have engaged with visual imagery that arises, you know, um, unsummoned. Mm-hmm. You know, I, But uh, when I really get down and start thinking about it, again, I'm asking myself, well – does that mean that I, that I am unconscious of this image? Like I am, I am aware of the imagery taking place. It is it is perceived by me, mm-hmm. even if it feels like I am less in control of it. But does that mean that it's somehow always back there? Uh, it, it gets gets really tricky. I feel like we end up in a situation where we can't really see the forest for the trees. You know, we get into that blind brain effect. Totally. And to come back to meditation, I mean, of course, when you are. And meditation is all about awareness yeah. and about it's change- experiments in consciousness. Yeah, and changing the way that your awareness is focused, uh, taking it, uh, you know, away from these things that you would normally miss, and fo- focusing on something uh, that is there here in the present. Yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Skylar. Hey, guys, Skylar from Kansas. Just finished listening to Burned from the Mind's Eye Part 2. And the end where you talked about a neural network being able to draw mental images was really great. It reminded me of a YouTube channel called Databots. Uh, it's D-A-D-A, data bots, I guess, not, da- not like data, uh-huh. uh, where a neural network is creating live death metal and jazz music 24-7. <laughs> I've actually heard this. Yeah? Yeah. It's like AI-generated death metal that's just streamed constantly. Is it death metal jazz? Is that... I, I think these are two different things, oh, maybe. Okay. Two uh, different channels. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Uh, the one I heard, it sounded kind of like uh, like Meshuggah, you know, yeah. it's sort of more atonal. But uh, there are definite funk elements in Meshuggah, though. But I don't yeah. know about I don't know about jazz. Um, okay, well, this this sounds interesting. Uh, anyway, Skyler continues. The longer I listen to it, the crazier and more real the music sounds. Just thought you would like that. Love the show. Keep it up. It, it, this is interesting because it, it touches on. I think this this uh, really intriguing idea of the future of of creative AI, uh-huh. and that is that not that you would have a machine that makes all your death metal, or a machine that makes all your jazz, or writes all your books, etc. Um, I, you know, maybe we'll get to that point. But I think the more exciting idea is that, of course, you have humans using AI to augment their uh, existing talents and creative ideas. Sure. So someone's saying, I want to make a jazzy death metal album, um, but I, I want to I break free from sort of the, you know, the boxes that are enclosing me here. And then you might turn to creative AI as a way to sort of discover where you could break free and also then be able to, to rein it in and say, well, I, I don't really want to go in this direction or this direction, but here's a direction I never even thought of before. You could almost use AI kind of like a, a creative I Ching or something, yeah. you know, like introducing elements of, of random input for you to sort through and make your own sense of. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, there have been creative uh, – methodologies like that before I'm reminded of like the cut up machine exactly uh, yeah. approach to fiction totally 
All right. So this next message comes in response to our episode, I Drink Your Blood Type, which uh, which had one of our favorite skits in a while, I think, about the blood club. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. And then uh, it was about blood types and also about the idea of uh, people believing in blood type personality correlations, like sort yeah. of the blood type horoscopes and mm-hmm. things. Blood, blood type diets and so forth. Uh, this was a really great piece of feedback from our listener, Annie. She says, hey, guys. I love the show and I just listened to the episode on blood. Being a geneticist and neuroscientist, I thought I would add my two cents worth in relation to your comments about blood type being linked to certain personality traits. While blood type is simply inherited by a single gene locus, personality is complex and is an interaction of many genes and environment. Certain learned behaviors can be passed down through families and in fact by different populations or ethnic groups at the same time as blood groups are inherited. So by pure coincidence due to specific personality traits of population groups, both blood type and these traits may track together. In this case, the two would be correlated with each other, but there's no evidence that one will cause the other. The other way blood groups could possibly follow inherited personality traits is if the genes are inherited together on the chromosome, and this is more likely to happen if the genes are closer in proximity on the chromosome, thus having less chance of being separated during the stages of crossing over during meiosis. The blood group gene is on the long arm of chromosome 9. Interestingly, a genetic mutation making one more susceptible to a certain type of dementia, C9ORF72, is also on chromosome 9, albeit on the other end of the chromosome, thus requiring an even number of crossings over to allow them to be inherited together. This form of dementia can cause behavioral variations which may cause personality changes decades before the dementia sets in. Finally, in regards to the comment about personality being related to the gut microbiome, uh, and this was when we were talking about the plausibility of the thing. We didn't think that that the blood type predictor of personality was very plausible, Mm -hmm. but we did say – it, there's a surface level kind of plausibility because you know things about the gut microbiome can predict personality at least potentially. Uh, so so uh, it, it might seem to people why couldn't the blood predict it as well? Uh, but Annie continues about the gut microbiome. This is much more feasible since the biota in the gut produce neurotransmitters which can affect mood and personality. And this stems from embryology when the gut and spinal cord were in fact one organ called the neural crest. The neural crest separates early during development, but the resulting gut and central nervous system are still closely linked during life as can be seen when we get gut reactions to certain brain stimuli. And we are now starting to see evidence of how the types of foods we eat affect the gut micro biome, which in turn can affect our mood and general state of mind. Looking forward to continuing to having my mind blown by you. All the best, Annie. Well, it was great to have a geneticist and neuroscientist chime in on that. Oh, yeah. I, I always love when uh, when y'all out there share your expertise with us. All right. On that note, I think we should probably take our first break. But when we come back, we will turn flesh into salt. All right. We're back. All right, now this next message concerns some episodes that came before Halloween, but since it also touches on some Halloween-y stuff, uh, I think we're throwing it in with the Halloween lot. Yeah, plus the the non-Halloween episodes that they touch on are also at least a little bit Halloween-y. I mean, you know how it goes. Uh, But this listener has written in before and always sends great messages. This is from Jesser. 
Jesser writes, hey, guys, I wanted to write in to share some thoughts on some recent episodes along with a little bit of monster history since it's getting close to October. In the Flesh into Salt episode, you talked about how Lot's wife might have been inspired by natural formations. But what could have been the inspiration for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a whole? While I'm not a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, I have a theory. It's a bit of Bronze Age (laughs) sci-fi. Going off of Isaac Asimov's definition of sci-fi as stories which deal with human response to new technology, maybe Sodom and Gomorrah is a uh, pastoral culture's idea of cities gone too far where urbanization has destroyed the custom of hospitality. If you start looking at Hebrew Bible stories through this lens, the Tower of Babel becomes a cautionary tale about monumental buildings. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a story about smelting furnaces taken too far. (laughs) And Joseph interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams, a parable about the importance of storing surplus grain. These stories would have entered the oral tradition when these ideas were still new, then preserved when written down as religious text. This is all speculation, but ancient peoples could have expressed their anxieties about new technologies through stories the same way we do today. I love this yeah. idea. I mean, again, this is – it's speculative. You can't like know this is the case really. But you could look for clues in this in the stories maybe. Uh, I, I like the idea that a lot of Bible stories and traditional myths might in fact be like – 3,000-year-old episodes of Black Mirror. Yeah. I mean, what do we know about about the, the way we think about the passage of time? Mm-hmm. We know that, yes, we are always anxious about new technologies as they are presented. Uh, the older generation is always suspicious of the younger generation mm-hmm. and uh, or fearful of them. We know that technology has profound effects on culture mm-hmm. that changes culture constantly. Yeah. So, I mean, this... Uh, you know, on the, on the surface, this sounds very plausible. And now, I don't know to, to what extent anyone has ever explored the concept of um, uh, certainly of, of mythology and folklore as as sort of primitive science fiction or pre science fiction sci fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would be interested to to learn more about uh, about how this might work. This sounds like this could be a fascinating book. Yeah, I, I don't, if it hasn't already been written. All right. So um, Jesser continues. Quote, I also have a thought about a part of what makes the Vonich manuscript so alluring. It's the fact that it's so mundane. You expect a hoax or an invention to be more flamboyant, to call more attention to itself. But as strange as the manuscript is, it doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it seems to get less interesting toward the end where you'd expect some sort of punchline or absurd conclusion. This is, this is a great point. I think this is one of the reasons that um, um, House of Leaves – is so uh, so convincing at times uh-huh. because I had that experience where I felt that it towards the end it gets more um, just reference referential you know and yeah. uh, and perhaps less engaging but in a way that makes it more it feels more authentic in that regard yeah totally. They continue. The Codex Seraphininus makes a good comparison because it's much more obviously playful and fantastic. You don't have to decipher its text to understand the point. But because the Vonich manuscript appears to be so straightforward and serious about its subject, people assume there must be some meaning behind it. The idea that it might mean nothing is existentially unsatisfying. Uh, I, I can totally see this, yeah. The, the And the Codex Seraphininus is a good point of comparison. We brought it up in the Voynich mm-hmm. Manuscript episode because it is something that we know was intentionally created as like an art project. It, right. it doesn't actually have a meaning. It's just there to be interesting and be, you know, fun. Yeah, and, and case in point, there are multiple pages uh, in it that you would – 
potentially like frame on the wall. Yeah. You know? I mean, it looks like a work of art, whereas the Vonich manuscript, uh, not every page is really like that interesting without knowing what it is or in fact what it is not. Yeah, and a lot of the more interesting pages come like, I don't know, two-fifths of the way through. It's in the like balneological sections, mm-hmm. the stuff with the weird baths and the like tentacle pipes and stuff. That That's where things get really weird. And then after that, it descends more into like – I think after that, it's like astrology, and then you get the recipes toward the end, which is by far the least interesting part. Yeah, whenever you're reading a story, especially if you're watching a movie that that has a like a dark book that shows up, a strange book, generally it looks like they can just turn to any page and it's instantly monstrous or weird mm-hmm. or you know uh, uh, eldritch uh, and so forth. Uh, but uh, you know, I like the idea that a, a true mystery book would only – its mysteries would only present themselves if you you knew what you were looking for, you know? So, yeah, I would take this as at least a little bit of evidence uh, more to the side that it does have a real meaning because it gets less interesting as it goes on. You'd expect if it were a hoax that it would be structured to have more of a climax of weirdness. Absolutely. So uh, Jester continues. Uh, they make a future episode suggestion regarding uh, uh, created languages and so forth, which I think could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's this, quote, lastly, I wanted to toss in some Halloween history about witches. We all know the stereotype of witches as older women wearing pointy hats, stirring bubbling cauldrons, flying on brooms, and hanging out with cats. Uh, where did this come from? It all goes back to beer. Beer? In- <laughs> all right. Well, it's here. Hear all about it. In 14th and 15th century Europe, brewing beer was considered a woman's job, part of keeping the house. Being a beer brewer was one of the few professions acceptable for older unmarried women to have. And when the witch craze began, these women were the most targeted demographic, both for social reasons, seen as being jealous of women who were married and had children, and and economic reasons, lacking the resources of a father's or husband's family to protect them. The traditional brewer's hat was tall and pointed, with a wide brim, like an anvil for a blacksmith. The traditional symbol of a brewer was the broom. Brewers kept cats as mousers to protect their stores of grain, and brewing beer does involve some stirring of bubbling cauldrons. Illustrations of typical witches uh, had all of these traits, and people at the time would understand as signifying beer brewers. Over time, the cultural context was lost, but the signifiers remained, leaving us with the modern image of the witch. Thanks for all the work you do in making my favorite polymath podcast. I have uh, – I've done some reading about uh, witches before. I haven't run across this uh, beer brewer argument. Yeah, I, I don't know what I think. Uh, like I like the case you make here. I feel like I'd have to do the research and check all this for myself. But uh, I, I'm definitely intrigued, yes, sir. Yeah, I, I mean it, it does sound concise in a way that tends to make me suspicious of uh, <laughs> of anything that's explaining a – cultural motif or a mythical monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, I'm, I'm open to the idea that perhaps this is at least part of the story. I mean, I definitely have read about beer brewing in the medieval or renaissance period being primarily the work of women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is true uh, about these specific things like the symbol of the broom and the hat and all that. I, I'd have to check that out. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I mean, the broom was already going to be a, a domestic symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, the hat, I don't know. You know, the hat is maybe an area of, of the witch motif that I haven't looked at a lot. Uh, it seems like things that I've, I've read have dealt more with the broom. But thanks as always, Jesser. This next one comes from Billy. This is just general Halloween mail and concerns cryptids. Billy writes, 
Hi, this never really took off, but earlier in the year, I made a Twitter bot that generates random descriptions of cryptids every few hours. <laughs> ah, you're speaking our language, Billy. It draws on banks of existing animals, bits of anatomy, adjectives, and a few other variables to produce unique and entertaining descriptions. You can find it at twitter.com slash cryptidfactory. Here's one of my favorites. Lord Alfred of Sweden has a tortoise and a glyptodon's delightful inverted front portion, no rear, and the body of a marlin, the size of an eraser. <laughs> I would love to know if this brings you any joy. Thanks, Billy. Uh, yeah, I uh, I like this idea. I think this is what Twitter is good for, is, <laughs> is making bots like this. Yeah, I mean, I'm always for any, you know, listing of mythical creatures and descriptions of their, um, you know, their, their physical characteristics. So uh, I'm all in. This brings me joy. Sure. Uh, I just looked up some of the most recent tweets as of the moment we're recording this. Here's one. Picture the widened head of a camel spider, but also an ammonite's bosom, commonly seen dragging herself past the undersides of leaves. <laughs> Not bad. One more. She has a shrimp's select flavor, the head of an evil mouse, a polar bear's waist, and the back sections of just a couple of lynxes. Once seen slithering toward carpets, the fluff of a gerbil will sporadically also feature. You know what this reminds me of um, are these uh, these children's books. Uh, there was one that I had when I was a kid, and there's a, a newer book that has the same concept that I also love. It has, I think, far superior art. But each page is a different creature. And each page has also been uh, cut into three sections so that you can flip and match and mismatch the different parts of a creature's body. Mm. And then at least some versions of this design also include text that does the same thing. So you can you can just go straight through the book and get uh, this monster, then this monster, then this monster. Or you can mix and match and create uh, you know a wider variety of strange hybrids. I love this. Yeah. I wish I'd had this book as a kid. And I wish I could remember the name of the, at least the, the new version because there's a really beautiful new book that has the same concept. The one I had as a kid, which I also I haven't – I literally have not seen since my childhood – had more cartoonish art, but still I remember being really captivated by it because there were all these different possibilities within it. And really that gets to the heart of so much monster creation. It is the, the hybridity of the, of the thing. It is the bringing together these different forms. All right. Here's another bit of listener mail. And this one comes to us from Adam related to our anthology of horror episodes, especially the most recent uh, installments. So last year we did uh, volume one. This year we did volume two and three. Mm-hmm. So Adam says, Dear Robert and Joe, I find myself writing to you a lot lately. I think it means that you've been hitting on some especially engaging topics for me. I wanted to write this email in response to the recent Anthology of Horror episode in which you discuss shadow play. Uh, this was an episode of The Twilight Zone. Right. This was the one about the the guy who claimed he was dreaming everyone around him. And if they sent him to the electric chair as he'd been sentenced to, they would all disappear because he'd stop dreaming. So Adam continues, uh, yeah, discuss shadow play, metaphysical solipsism, and the idea that separate consciousnesses may exist in the form of other characters within our dreams. I have something resembling firsthand experience in this matter, and it was terrifying. Some of the details are hazy, as it happened in a dream about three years ago. Thankfully, I wrote an account soon after that 
uh, that I was able to refer to. I have not engaged in lucid dreaming in some time, but I used to practice it and have experienced it to varying degrees of success. One night, I became lucid in a dream where I was in a crowded room with a close friend who I will call Ben. I was very excited and decided to tell Ben, this is all a dream and you're a character in my dream. At first, Ben was dismissive, saying that there was no way he was a dream and so forth, very similar to many of the characters in Shadow Play. This is the point where I wish that I had decided to use my lucidity for something else, uh, but unfortunately, I decided to try to convince Ben that it was a dream. He did not take kindly to it. In an instant, all the other people in the room with us turned in unison to face me and stared with expressionless faces. I somehow knew they had all become some kind of hive mind with Ben as their leader. Ben's demeanor then shifted from neutral and carefree to sinister and hostile. It wasn't just his physical demeanor, but I felt as if his negative energy was filling the room. Although I was lucid, I got the impression that it was uh, he who was in control of the dream. He then began to attack me verbally. He talked about a painful rejection that I had recently experienced experience, played on some insecurities that I had been experiencing, and told me secrets that I have never told anyone. Then he stopped, gave me a menacing grin, and said, that's right, I know everything about you. At that moment, the crowd moved in unison towards me with angry faces, and I awoke with a fright. I took a while to get back to sleep, and thankfully when I did, Ben was not waiting for me. A few days later, I posted this story to the subreddit Lucid Dreaming, and someone in the comments suggested that, that uh, this may have been the non-dominant hemisphere of my brain trying to communicate with the dominant hemisphere. I don't know if this is the case, but I fully believe that during the interaction, there were two separate consciousnesses existing in my dreaming mind, uh, and one of them, Ben, was hostile toward the other, me. Regardless of the explanation, I would not recommend trying to confront solipsism by telling people they don't exist, <laughs> even if it's true. Uh, it uh, it would have been far better to keep that knowledge to myself far away out of a lucid adventure. Best regards, Adam. Well, I don't know uh, I don't know if I can back up that explanation of it being the non-dominant hemisphere, but that is one of the most horrifying dreams I've ever heard of <laughs> because it sort of it has implications that go beyond the dream, right? It's like uh, one of the few cases where you could imagine a dream actually representing some threat that persists after the dream is over. Yeah, and then interesting too that like the, basically lucidity has been introduced to a certain extent within the dream, mm -hmm. but then there is still, you know, the, the dream characters still have weight and still have have power and seem to have even uh, you know some state of a mind uh, of their own, mm -hmm. which is uh, yeah, which is interesting and potentially terrifying. Uh, here's the question: I wonder, uh, Adam, why you thought that Ben was conscious and not just like a hostile agent that you were imagining in, in your dream, as you would often imagine mm -hmm. a hostile agent. I mean, we, we imagine hostile agents in our dreams all the time, things chasing us and and all this. I introduced the possibility in that episode that these other agents we imagine could in some sense be conscious because our minds are possible of consciousness. You know, we're imagining them, so maybe the brain is using some sort of its consciousness potential in these separate simulated agents that it creates. Uh, but th there's no way – there's like – 
while I can't rule out that possibility, I don't know of strong evidence that that's the case. But then it, go, it comes back to what we were discussing too. You, you could say, well, this is this doesn't mean Ben was conscious. This just means that you your sleeping self was engaging in some level of uh, theory of mind. Yeah. But as we discussed, what if theory of mind is creating some you know semi like low resolution conscious model of what we think another person is thinking? Yeah. Uh, again, it's like it's hard to rule that out as far as we know, but but I don't know of any strong evidence that indi- indicates it, but you seem to think that's the case. Maybe it's just because if a if another agent that we imagine in a dream or something is is frightening and lucid and real enough, and especially in this case because it knows it, it proclaims to know everything about you, um, maybe that just naturally leads us to think it's conscious, kind of the same way that we start to think robots are conscious if they're mm-hmm. sufficiently humanoid. Does that make sense? Yes. But, Adam, if you, if you have other reasons for thinking that this bin in your mind was actually a separate, truly conscious entity, uh, I, I would be interested in hearing what your reasons are for thinking that. All right, here's another quick one. This one comes to us from D. D says, love the episode. One bit of Barry Nelson trivia. Barry, Barry Nelson, to remind everybody, uh, was the, the actor who played the, the character Ullman in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. When did Barry Nelson come up in the anthology episodes? He was in the episode of Monsters, uh, Far Below. Okay. Uh, so he played the lead in that, that episode. This is, the, uh, and, uh, this is the one where he's you know, fighting the ghouls and so forth. Mm. But he was a longstanding uh, TV and film actor who is probably most famous for being in The Shining in that scene where uh, he's, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson's character is there for a job interview. Right. And in the moment, I accidentally uh, confused him with Barry Sullivan, who was in Planet of the Vampires. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, D shares this one bit of Barry Nelson trivia. He was the first actor to play James Bond what? in an adaptation of Casino Royale, which was uh, an episode of, the, of a 1950s TV show called Climax, which was also an anthology. Hmm. Uh, I've never seen that. So this apparently even predates the – was it Peter Sellers who played James Bond in uh, like a, a farcical adaptation of Casino Royale before they made Dr. No? Yeah, he did. I went ahead and looked this up just to make sure. And sure enough, Barry Nelson played James Bond. And guess who played the villain? I, I don't know. Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre. Oh, yes. nice. Yeah. Yes. So I kind of want to go Mr. back and check Bond. this out. Uh, this would be interesting to see. I've never seen this. Uh, but I'm obviously I'm a fan of the two leads there. I love that I can get a Peter Lorre and a Christopher Lambert out of the same impression. It's basically the same voice. Uh-huh. The only Just the face is more handsome uh, in the French model. Oh, and I also wanted to share something that didn't come in as an email but was shared on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook discussion module uh, by a listener who uh, – I don't since it's a discussion module, I don't know if she'd want to be named or not. So I'll just leave her name off for okay. now um, uh, since we, we didn't – Discuss that ahead of time. But uh, but I wanted to share because uh, she had some interesting feedback. Uh, she said, just listen to the Anthology of Horror Part 2 episode and have some comments on the discussion you had at the end about multiple consciousnesses in one mind. As someone with dissociative identity disorder, this is exactly what is going on for me, or at least the only way I can describe it. It isn't a far-out speculation. It's my lived experience. And I don't have any communication with the other parts, but other people do. And my parts leave clear like notes or cuts or leftovers of food I never would have wanted to eat. 
Each of these parts is in a way a separate consciousness with its own reaction to events, own memories, and even own favorite pizza topping. And your mini Carl Sagan simulation would be what is known as an introject, an alterer part that exists in you and has its own experiences but is based on something in the outside world that seemed to possess enough of the traits needed for survival that the mind created it. Wow, I obviously may not have everything right here, and I'm not speaking for anyone except me, and I'm in no way speaking of the experiences of other people with DID or similar. It just seemed odd you didn't bring this up in your discussion. This was a really great point, and uh, I actually had a, a back and forth with uh, with this listener on the subject. The main difference uh, that dissociative identity disorder didn't come up when I was thinking about this is we were considering if it's possible for the mind to simultaneously have more than one consciousness existing. Like in mm -hmm. your dream, could it be possible that both you with your regular mind, your, you know, your primary mind are conscious in the dream and then also the brain is generating some separate conscious entity, maybe a, a kind of like less conscious or lower resolution conscious entity at the same time. And they, so there could be like two minds generated by the same brain simultaneously. Yeah, um, I mean, for, for starters, I think that you know, if we were, we would want to give a like a full, proper, deep dive into into this uh, topic if we were to you know, to, to discuss uh, uh, discuss it in the future. Right. But this also reminds me once again, Blindsight, uh, the novel by Peter Watts, has mm -hmm. a character in it uh, that has uh, multiple personalities, as I recall, mm -hmm. where they've uh, through some level of uh, I can't remember if it had been partially engineered or not. Uh, but are you remembering this? As oh well? yes, totally. Yeah. yeah. I seem to recall that it was a person who had been, uh, you know, in this sci-fi scenario, mm -hmm. uh, had been uh, had had this done intentionally for some kind of reason, like right. a, like maybe having different kinds of expertise in the brain. Or yeah, something. that sounds right. Yeah, uh, and and I just wanted to say also in the responses that uh, the, the same listener says uh, that uh, I know there's such thing as DID with uh, alters being co-conscious, but ha uh, but they haven't personally experienced it. And so I think this is worth revisiting in a future show. Yeah, I think so too. By the way, uh, tiny Carl Sagan in my brain, I, I, I've tried to imagine what uh, its favorite pizza would be. And it's, it's definitely Hawaiian pizza. It's definitely Ugh. ham and pineapple. I don't know why. I have nothing to back that up uh, with. But for some reason, that seems right. And as for the tiny Terrence McKenna, can you guess what his favorite topping is? Oh, it's got to be Yage root pesto. <laughs> uh, no, I know what you're going to say. It's mushrooms, of yes. course. <laughs> it's, it's obviously mushrooms. Uh, but uh, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting. That like that in and of itself is an interesting question, though, because especially with the Carl Sagan one, it's like to a certain extent, I do have this kind of like tiny, you know, conception of who the character is and what they like, even if I've never stop for a second to wonder what kind of pizza the real-life Carl Sagan preferred. Right. Or have you ever spoke about it? Do you want to read this message from Jim in New Jersey? Yes, absolutely. All right. This one comes to us from Jim, and uh, they write, I have another TV show about dreams and reality. It was the 2012 limited series NBC show Awake. Jason Isaacs, oh, Jason Isaacs, always right. terrific, portrays the police detective Michael Britton. 
The show begins with Britton and his teenage son grieving the death of their wife mother in a car accident that involved the entire family. The next morning, Britton awakens and finds his wife repainting the house to occupy her to help with her grief and the death of their son in the same accident. Britton is living two contradictory realities. Each morning when he awakes, his day flips to the other reality. One is where his son survived the accident and one is where his wife does. He has a police department psychologist assigned in each reality. He tells each of of his duality and both assure him that his other reality is the dream, but they can't really prove it. Each assumes his vivid dream is some form of denial. B.D. Wong, oh, he's oh, great. great, does a fantastic job as one of the psychologists, but then again, Wong does a fantastic job in every performance. To me, he'll always be Henry Wu. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, Jim continues. It was an entertaining series, but not super sophisticated. Each reality had a different color palette, making it easier to keep track of where Britain re- uh, was. The show does reveal which reality is which by the end, sort of. As for the Twilight series episode, uh, wouldn't the people in a dream disappear when the dreamer wakes up, whether electrocuted or just awakening normally? I think that, of course, would be the case, but I don't know. It's it's like Twilight Zone logic, right? Yeah. You got to emphasize the most dramatic elements. As for our Descartes argument uh, that we can't trust our senses and the only thing we can depend upon is our own reasoning, I'm even starting to doubt that. You've discussed consciousness before. Where does it exist? The brain is made up of neurons, which don't do much individually. When the number of firing input synapses crosses a threshold, the neuron triggers its outmost synapse, triggering other synapses. The brain is not much more than a massively complex adding machine. Maybe Descartes uh, would have been more correct in stating, I think, therefore, I sum, or in Latin, uh, cogito ergo am, uh, (laughs) even though I can definitely perceive my consciousness, I sometimes wonder if it's just a behavior that emerges from all of these neurons firing. Uh, P.S. I wish I could take credit for the sum am flip in the Descartes quote. Uh, It's from Godel Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. Okay, going back to the to the dream thing, how he's saying, you know, whether whenever he wakes up, the people will disappear, whether he's electrocuted or not. Uh, maybe it's just uh, Grant, the the main guy in the episode, being selfish and saying he doesn't want to be electrocuted, and that's the reason he's telling people mm-hmm. he wouldn't bother telling them. Also, if you just let me hang out here for a while, eventually I'll wake up and you'll all disappear. Mm. As for consciousness being an, an emergent phenomenon of enough neurons firing, I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the standard models that uh, people propose. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's entirely plausible. I'm very interested by this NBC show, The Awake. Uh, I may have to go see yeah, about revisiting it. I haven't seen it. It came out in 2012. I, maybe it came out a little before its time, it's sounding like. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break, and then we'll be right back. All right. We're back. All right. This next email being burned onto a tortilla for us here comes from our listener, Rowan. And uh, just a warning, if, if you got kids listening or something, this one mentions the use of psychedelics. Dear Robert and Joe, I've been meaning to sit down and write to you for a while now, but after your recent episode on driving and your brain, I felt like I had to get on it. Uh, this was one of the ones we did in October. We sort of talked about Christine. We talked about yeah. the psychological effects of driving. Uh, Rowan writes, I drive for 9 to 10 hours a day, and your show was the first one I found when I was introduced to podcasts about three years ago, and you've been on my drive playlist ever since. Oh, well, very happy to be there. 
First off, I want to thank you for the work you do. You guys are incredibly educational and inspiring. Your episode on urban evolution, probably two years ago at this point, is the reason I decided to pick my degree back up and graduate and is the reason I plan on declaring a major in forestry and a minor in urban planning. Oh, wow. wow. Awesome. Great to hear. I love hearing stuff like that. Warms my heart. Rowan continues, in your driving episode, you talk about tool use and how it can alter our perception of distance and size. Anecdotally, I've definitely noticed this in an odd way. I drive a large cargo van at work and have a rather small personal car that I rarely drive as I walk most everywhere. On the times that I do drive, my brain assumes that I am in my van, as in I see my car as being much larger. The roadways feel smaller than, say, after a vacation where I am away from the van for long periods. Imagine, if you will, watching someone parallel park a Corolla as if it were a box truck. <laughs> that that also sounds like a great uh, uh, Rod Sterling, uh, Rod Sterling uh, introduction to Twilight Zone or Night Gallery. Imagine, if you will. <laughs> Watching someone parallel park a Corolla as if it were a box truck. It couldn't happen, but it could <laughs> in the Twilight Zone. Okay, on with the mail. Uh, Another of your episodes that I feel I should write in about is your show on the split brain. I have damage to the left hemisphere of my brain from what my doctor described as a stroke in the third trimester of pregnancy, which interrupted the development of the right side of my body and caused pea-like patches of no activity on my MRIs. For a long time, I really only considered how this damage had affected me in a physical way. Listening to your episodes along with one other, shout out to You Are Not So smart if for some reason you need a new podcast, really got me thinking about how it would have affected my cognitive function. There is a feeling I have at times when I am struggling to find a word, listen to an explanation someone is giving, or think through a problem. To try to explain it, it feels like the thought is hitting a blockage, similar to the feeling of having something on the tip of your tongue, but slightly different. It's not that I'm trying to remember something, more that I've already remembered it, but I can't say it. I suffer from fairly persistent depression and anxiety. However, I often feel the physical effects of them and am unable to identify the source or even the emotion itself at times. It feels as if my brain gets stuck when trying to figure out the reaction my body is having and doesn't quite get to communicating it with my conscious self, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I think some of that just matches up with just normal cognition or at least Mm. what my brain assumes is normal cognition, but uh, you know, other aspects of that might be uh, you know singular to this condition. Yeah, uh, we did an episode on the tip of the tongue phenomenon not too long ago. If you've been listening for three years, you you probably heard yeah, that he, one. Yeah, the, yeah, Rowan knows. And I guess this next comment comes uh, in response to the fact that we did that psychedelic series. The last thing I wanted to mention in this long-winded email is that, well, I did LSD a while back and it was a hoot. (laughs) Some friends and I spent the day in the yard with our dog and had a wonderful time. The one major thing I remember was feeling a connectedness to people I was with. Uh, If you can imagine the feeling of the way trees in a forest are connected through uh, mycorrhizal networks Mm -hmm. as – or mycorrhizal. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Yeah, I think we've touched. We I can't remember if we've touched on this, or I just keep meaning to touch on this more. Uh, I think it came up a little bit in the the mushrooms uh, uh, in the psychedelics episodes, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 fungal networks that connect these trees, and the and some of the some really interesting work going into uh, looking at this sort of communication that occurs. Well, we could come back and go deep on that sometime. 
but finally, uh, Rowan writes, uh, as I'm writing this, I'm also starting to get curious as to how hemispheric brain damage would alter a psychedelic experience. Huh, yeah, mm, I, I don't know anything question. about that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that I've seen that question asked before. I would be surprised if there's not some kind of ongoing research about that. Hmm. Yeah, because as we discussed, like split brains were, uh, you know, or anytime you have a brain that uh, has, you know, suffered damage of some sort. It's like, asymmetrically affected. Yeah, yeah. like that's going to be very useful to looking at uh, some sort of, you know, neurological question. So, uh, yeah, it stands to reason somebody has at least considered that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, it was great to hear from Rowan on all of this. Now, it's the first time I've heard someone say LSD was a hoot. Um <laughs> I feel like most people would would maybe describe it a little differently, but uh, but fair enough. It's all very subjective. All right, so uh, let's move on to feedback on another episode. Uh, our episode on the Garrison Swine. Uh, this was a this was a really fun episode because it had uh, it had demons in it. It had uh, pigs in it. Uh, we got to animal talk tool about use, animal tool use, pig cognition, Bible stories, <laughs> the whole nine yards. Uh, so first, here's a short bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Chris. Robert and Joe, I listen to Stuff to Blow Your Mind pretty much every week, probably my favorite podcast. While listening to this episode, I was thinking a couple of things. Firstly, I don't remember you ever mentioning sea otters as animals that use tools. They're the only marine animals to use stone tools, uh, add in that they're treacherous necrophiliacs. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about that. Well, um, Did you and Christian talk about that in your necrophilia episode? We might well have, yeah. If, if you want to hear more about necrophilia, uh, check out that episode that Christian and I did uh, a few years back. Uh, it's, a, it's a good one. It ultimately demystifies necrophilia. De- deals, I think we get into human necrophilia a little bit, but we spend a lot of time talking about animal necrophilia, which right. of course is like the primary place you go to understand what this thing is before you get into human complications. Right. Uh, but then Chris continues to talk about the pigs we discussed in that episode. Yeah, uh, uh, they write, then during your discussion on Visayan warty pigs using tools and them not being very effective, perhaps the use of tools is a signal that they're building a nest versus rooting around for food. Uh, Thanks for all the great shows. Chris. I think this is an interesting possibility. So one of the questions we had was uh, this research into the pigs found that the pigs using the like bark and sticks to dig in the ground to make nests – did seem to fit the formal criteria for tool use, but it didn't seem like they were much more efficient or at least in all cases more efficient at nest building when using the tools than they were when they were just digging with their hooves or snouts. Hmm. So the question is why are they using the tools then if it doesn't necessarily give them an advantage, like help them build a nest faster? Hmm. Uh, One thing that I offered is, well, what if the parts of their bodies they normally dig with just get sore from doing it or something? That's that's a possibility. One of the things the authors brought up is that it could just be a uh, a, a social convention, almost sort of like pig culture. Yeah. Uh, and well, then that would, I think, line up kind of with what Chris is talking about here. Well, yeah. I, th- I think the idea here is that if I'm understanding Chris correctly, the idea is that picking up a tool to start digging 
shows the other pigs that it's time to build a nest instead of just the other pigs seeing you rooting around like you normally would when you're looking for food. Right. I mean, it could almost be interpreted, I guess, as kind of like a uh, like a fitness display. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, these documentaries in which you see uh, birds, uh, male birds building, you know, some sort of a, a mating uh, structure, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that is just about atta- attracting the females. Now, obviously, this would not be exactly the same thing. Right. But perhaps... Th- the the idea I think that Chris is getting at is that the use of the tool could be part of of the sig- the overall signaling saying that I I am building the nest now yeah and and but but it tends to I think start with the females and the pigs and that mm-hmm. they share the behaviors with like they sort of mm. teach the males how to do it it suggests to me that if that is in fact what's going on it could be that it's it's almost like ringing the whistle to it's, it's time to start work because the nest building was a social thing it was like more than one pig participated in the digging of the nest interesting so it's like maybe maybe picking up the bark and doing that gets the other pigs on task uh, possibility yeah <laughs> All right, well, now we're going to jump into another longer email about the the Garrison demoniac. Uh, this one's long enough, in fact, that I'm going to tag out to you uh, during the reading of this email. Okay. All right, this one comes to us from Sean. Hi, Joe and Robert. I'm a longtime listener and occasionally write in. My last email that you read out in a listener mail episode was also from Halloween last year, something about Halloween uh, that makes me want to write in. I feel you. <laughs> I just finished listening to your episode on the Gerasen demoniac, which was a fascinating Bible story that I hadn't heard of before. You also covered lots of points that I'd like to reply to, especially adding input from the other side of the world. I live in Indonesia. The very first thing I thought of while listening was a story from Bali from a few years ago. This story is a massive WTF from the start and gets so much wilder by the end. A teenage boy was caught having sex with a cow in a village in the west of Bali. As this act spiritually defiled the village and the boy, a wedding ceremony was then held between the boy and the cow. Both were dressed up in customary wedding attire. To complete the spiritual cleansing of the village, the cow was drowned in the sea. uh, Here is the earliest report in English I could find after a quick Google, and he points to a metro.co.uk story, uh, Man Forced to Marry Cow Faints at Wedding, which – you know, sounds like a you know a goofier headline than like the true story. I feel like we're we're absorbing from this telling, right? Uh, they continue. While a different animal and involving bestiality, the stories are somewhat similar. They both involve possession of demons or bad spirits. They both involve ceremony, including animals, and they are both concluded with animals dying before the case being declared closed. The Balinese religion, uh, while called Hindu, is not very similar to the Indian Hinduism where cows are revered. It incorporates a lot more animist beliefs and uh, the ever-presence of good and bad spirits. While there might not be a take-home message from this story, it certainly is fascinating and quite a unique insight into a unique culture. Another part of this episode appealing to me, uh, as you talked about religious taboos, particularly the eating of pork. I should start by saying I am a Muslim. I wasn't born into Islam, but I converted three years ago. So I have experience growing up in an English culture and living a pork-free lifestyle. 
It seems to me that while, as you pointed out, there may have been initially very good reasons to ban the eating of pork, such as the reasons you mentioned, the fact that the fact that pork flesh is a host for parasitic worms and more, modern farming and food preparation would deem these reasons unimportant. Your reason that pigs are indiscriminate eaters and uh, omnivorous makes a lot of sense, as it is also forbidden to eat animals with fangs, uh, i.e. carnivores. Another, uh, However, the reason given by the Quran, to my knowledge, uh, but please don't take my word alone, is that the flesh is dirty. I believe you were right in saying that it is mostly taken nowadays to be a signal. It is not necessarily a sacrifice for any Muslims who have never uh, even tried pork, but is definitely seen as a we don't do this, the people who aren't in our group do situation. I would like to add uh, here that that pork is not forbidden if there is no other food source available. I should also mention that even among the Balinese, who are known lovers of pork, uh, there has recently been some suspicion as there have been a few cases of people becoming infected by bacteria in undercooked meat that reportedly led to meningitis. Personally, I think the idea that we follow this rule because non-believers do the opposite is not a particularly strong argument. It affects me personally as I have two dogs at home, and in Islam, this is not uh, a, the done thing. But the more I try to find out why, it seems like the reason is because non-believers have dogs and we are not non-believers. This brings me to my response to Augustine's view of animal rights based on his reading of the scripture. All right, I'm going to tag out now, Joe. All right, Sean goes on. Like I said, many Muslims would not have a dog. In some cases, there's a strong dislike, hatred, or even abuse of dogs as a result. I am, however, adamant that this is not stemming from a reading of the Quran or other religious laws, but from cultural upbringing. In the Quran, one of three mentions of dogs is that you may eat food hunted by your dog. Another mention is of a dog who accompanied a group of pious believers and protected them as they slept in a cave while fleeing persecution. I used to work for an animal welfare organization here in Bali, for part of which I tried to develop a curriculum that incorporated animal welfare, so I looked for religious stories or texts that would promote animal welfare to children. While Islam promotes eating meat and the general idea of humanity uh, is above animals, I feel there's nothing in the text that would call for the abuse of animals. In fact, the opposite is true. It is forbidden to spend money on dogs, gamble on animals, it is encouraged to give water and food to thirsty and hungry dogs. It's forbidden to slaughter a younger animal. There is one story in which Muhammad said angels do not visit a house which has a dog, and this seems to be the only negative. There is, of course, the doctrine of a dog's saliva is impure and must be cleaned, but this is alleviated by the simple process of cleaning. However, I feel that cultural leanings have gone the way of Augustine, taking one story, that dogs hinder angels from entering a house, and one idea of impurity about dog saliva, and using this as an excuse to neglect or abuse animals. Animals. I know you focus mainly on Christianity and animal rights, but I feel this reflects the same ideas. To summarize, cleansing ceremonies involving bad spirits and animals forced to their deaths are still a thing. Pork is probably okay to eat if sourced well and cooked right, but nowadays is a cultural signal. And, like Augustine, many people nowadays take one passage from Scripture and use it to allow themselves to treat others poorly, ignoring the wealth of Scripture pointing in the other direction. I'm very sorry for the long message. I'm quite surprised I had so much to say about a demonic pig exorcism. <laughs> but I hope there are some parts you can take away from my email that entertain you or bring to light some views from different cultures. And as always, I love the show and look forward to whatever adventure you take me on next. All the best, Sean. No, absolutely. I I, I really appreciated Sean's insight on this. Um, 
and uh, and you know and i think it also shows that you know the, the, how interesting this topic was that um you know what on the surface is just kind of a wtf uh, you know story from the new testament uh, ultimately touches on so many different aspects of of human culture and human behavior yeah i mean uh, one of the things sean brings up which i think is true is that the the element of the pigs running in the into the sea to die afterwards that could reflect I don't know, uh, not something about the peculiarities of that story itself, but could be a, a deeper sort of motif of like the scapegoat tradition, right? You know, putting sins or uncleanness into an animal that is then sent out into the wilderness to its death or is put to death or something uh, as, as a way of uh, sort of like transferring the bad stuff out. So so I can totally see it fitting with that tradition that, uh, like, as Sean says, is still used in many ways today. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about scapegoats in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly we could come back and do more in the future. All right. We're getting towards the end here, but we have two more bits of Halloween listener mail that Carney is insisting that we read because if we don't, it might have to go back into the pit until next year. So uh, this one comes to us from, um, this is Carrie, I believe. And Carrie writes, hi, thanks for a great show. I just listened to your show about Ginny Green Teeth. This was an episode from the previous year, but we right. re-ran it. Vault episode. Yeah. Uh, about Ginny Green Teeth, which ended with a recommendation about the Hitcher and his scary song about eels. <laughs> um, the Hitcher is, of course, a, a character from the, the British uh, comedy series, The Mighty Boosh, mm-hmm. which uh, I think at this point has been off the air for like an amazingly long period of time in an age where netflix and other streaming shows are bringing back everything i'm a little surprised nobody has 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 given us a boosh revival uh but for fans of the great british bake-off i don't know if you've seen it noel fielding is on the show yeah yeah. he's the host right yeah Yeah. one Uh, one of them yeah i mean both both uh, julian as well they've both continued to work a lot and you can certainly find them uh out there they just aside from some live uh stuff they haven't they haven't fully come back to the bush. Uh, Rachel and I make a lot of baking show jokes about uh, just baking a little foxy man. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, so uh, Carrie continues. Uh, it made me think about a book I just finished called The Gospel of the Eels by Patrick Svensson. Uh, there is a chapter in the book about the eel as a creepy and scary being which has haunted us in numerous ways. It has almost crept into our subconscious and could be claimed to have made Sigmund Freud come up with his psychoanalysis since he, as a young scientist, could not find its genitals, hidden and not possible to directly observe with scientific methods. (laughs) Well, later it was naturally found. The way this uh, was done also makes up a very intriguing story. Uh, And Freud had just been studying the wrong metamorphous stage of the eel. (laughs) I like that. I never heard that before. I thought that this could be an interesting October episode, or if you do not have the time for the uh, f- uh, for the moment, uh, something inspiring for a later occasion. Below is a link to review of the book. Thank you for a great show. Keep up the good work. Uh, uh, you know, I would I would be up for an episode on eels and mm-hmm. our humans' relationship with eels. I've I've always found them fascinating. Um, I got to see one while snorkeling recently, and that was a lot of fun. Freud and the elusive genitals sell me on it, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, and if, if Freud has something to say about them, then then clearly there's some meat on the bone there. All right, we have one last listener mail. Would you do the honors, Joe? Sure, this is in response to another uh, Vault episode we released in October, the one about monstrosity and cuteness, why so many uh, monsters, especially like Japanese yokai, I believe, 
uh, end up with these very popular, cute versions of them that exist uh, all throughout culture. So uh, Landon writes in, Hello, guys. I wanted to respond to this episode in a few ways. First, I've never seen a cute or adorable version of Sauron, Saruman, the Nazgul, or the Urukai. Maybe they exist, but I've never seen them anywhere. Well, hold on. The, they're the whole uh, – there's the pop – what is it? The pop funky, pop funke. What is it? I don't know what you're talking about. Funko Pop. Seth uh, has just chimed in. The Funko Pop. Uh-huh. Yeah, the little uh, little uh, you know uh, dolls, the little uh, uh, sculptures of different pop culture figures. Yeah, the little pill heads. Yeah. yeah, I feel like there's a kind of cute looking Sauron. I think I've seen that somewhere. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's weird because I feel like they would have to make its head very wide, and the whole point of Sauron's head is that his head has verticality. It's a cathedral with the helmet. Right. But, I mean, basically just a big head, small body, squat little cute form. It's – granted, you can only make Sauron so cute. And obviously there's nothing really you can do with the the, the great all-seeing eye incarnation. But I, th- I think I think it's been done. I think he's too popular to not do up like that. I was a little appalled recently when I was at a, a bookstore with my son and we were looking at the Harry Potter stuff because mm-hmm. he's Harry Potter obsessed. And lo and behold, here are cute Voldemorts. There should not be cute Voldemorts. <laughs> Voldemort, Voldemort is not cute in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and yet we've we've made them and I presumably people buy them. Oh, I don't know. I could go for a cute Saruman. It almost writes itself. I'm Saruman of many colors, you know. <laughs> All right, Landon continues. Second, could the idea to make all these villains and monsters cute be related to making the hero more adorable too? Think the Flintstone kids, Muppet babies, and even the more recent travesty of Marvel heroes as babies. <laughs> I have I, not I, seen I, that. I don't know what that refers to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole lineup of these young children, ver- uh, young versions of characters. Uh, maybe someone eventually said, why not the monster slash villain too? I don't know. Does does Muppet babies predate the cute yokai? I have no idea. Um, hmm, I mean, Muppet babies are an interesting point. I don't know. There is this <laughs> – it's like as if the adult Muppets were not already cute and cuddly enough. Right. Uh, I mean, I watched way too too much of the Muppet Babies, um, but I, I can't say I loved it. Uh, at the same time, oh, I don't know. I feel like there is something going on there where if you take something and you essentially turn it into a teddy bear, mm-hmm. there is something going on there where we're perhaps saying this means so much to me as an adult or as a, you know, or at least an, a non-child that I can, I can and want to transform it into like a larval form, into a teddy bear form that I will then cling to now and in doing so I kind of like retroactively attach my childhood to it. Mm, yeah, I see that. Or, I mean, maybe you did read uh, Lord of the Rings when you were a kid. I mean, I, I, I did. So, you know, it's not that big of a stretch to like transform it into a teddy bear or a doll and then love it as an adult to reconnect with the child that you were when you first explored this world. I mean, Lord of the Rings already has elements that are insufferably cute. Like the hobbits are like – they're almost too cute to read about at points, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I guess that's part of what the the contrast there that makes the story work. So you've got the 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 doomy darkness of of the Great War and Mordor and all that, and then you've got the hobbits, which are so quaint as to uh, I don't know make all that stuff the more powerful. Yeah, well, I mean, and ultimately, I guess the idea is like the Shire is what you're fighting for, right? Like yeah. the Shire is the the thing that should be protected. 
All right, Landon goes on. Uh, the other idea is based on the scripture in the Bible that speaks of Satan as transforming himself into an angel of light. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that is to say he makes bad things look good, which accounts for much in the world, if you ask me. Well, think, think of the Japanese demons you spoke of, for example. People lived in fear of and acted and reacted for hundreds of years based on the belief that these demons could harm them. Now that the world is more, quote, in Enlightened people do not believe in demons as much. However, the demons still influence the lives of people, even if this is a new concept. Satan has made danger seem safe. What do you guys think? Uh, I don't know if Landon means this literally or just sort of like as a way of, I don't know, as a kind of a, a cultural pattern here. Well, in my experience uh, growing up in uh, like a Baptist church, that whole line about Satan transforming himself into an angel of light was generally used to explain why you shouldn't like something that you like or you shouldn't want something that you want. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, there are things, yes, that any human may feel some desire for that uh, it is advisable to be reminded that there may be some pitfalls there to wanting that, you know. But on the other hand, there are plenty of things that are uh, just part of like normal human behavior or just part of of life. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for somebody to come along and say, nope, don't go after that. That's just Satan in a disguise right there. Uh, yeah. In my early conservative Christian environments, I, I remember that being deployed much along the same lines as uh, the idea that the Antichrist will come in the name of peace. This mm-hmm. was often cited uh, basically against any politician or public figure who who was against war or who mm-hmm. advocated peace in any kind of way, the idea was like, ah, that's a sign that they're bad. Yeah. yeah. So wanting peace, bad. <laughs> glowing uh, gl- glowing uh, with light, also potentially bad. Uh, finally, Landon says, uh, thanks for all the good work. I love the episodes where you read some ancient text or story at the beginning. You both have a perfect cadence. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Because uh, generally we just do it because it's fun. But uh, it's always totally. nice when people connect with the, the cold opens. All right. I think that does it for this year's Halloween stuff. Yes. Uh, that wasn't obvi- – I'm, I'm sorry to say that wasn't all the mail we got. As we said, uh, our mailbag is overflowing. Our, our, our cup runneth over. And we really appreciate all of the great messages you send us. Uh, sorry if your message didn't make it onto this episode. But uh, feel free to write us again in the future. Absolutely. Uh, again, we're going to follow this up with another listener mail that's going to be additional non-Halloween listener mail. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you know where to find them. There's the website, stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can also find Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you get your podcasts. And just make sure you have subscribed and that you give us a nice rating uh, if, you, if you like the show. That really helps us out. As for other projects, there's Invention, our journey through human techno history. Do check that out if you haven't given it a shot. You'll find that at inventionpod.com. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that comes out once a week and is a tremendous amount of fun. We recently recorded an episode about um, the uh, uh, the spit dog, which uh, is is phenomenal. I think it's maybe one of the best episodes we uh, we've recorded for Invention, and I really want to encourage everyone to check that out. And if you're in the mind for a little sci-fi, some fiction, a little bit of horror this uh, this season, uh, you might want to check out the second Oil Age. Uh, that's the the fiction series uh, that I was involved with, and it is I think at this point. 
as of, as of this recording, like six episodes out of ten are out. Uh, and if you if you were to wait, to, go ahead and subscribe, but you can wait till the end of the month, and then you'll have all ten ready to go, ready to binge. Seriously, folks, check out The Second Oil Age, delicious dark sci-fi. I think you'll love it. If you like us, you'll love it. All right, and that's all I got. Uh, how can they email us, Joe? Oh, of course. You can contact us as always. Wait, first, got to give a shout-out to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. Oh, of course. But you can email us, as always, at uh, contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.